Welcome everyone. I'm happy to have on Colin Padgett of Founders Metals. If you're like me, you have a tendency to get nervous chasing exciting stories that have already re-rated multiples of where they started. The upside to this strategy is that you don't get caught in a run pull and buy the top of, over, of an overhyped story. But the downside is that you also miss out on the truly massive winners. So the tricky part that is being able to identify which stories have already been told and which are just getting started. And I don't pretend to know with 100% confidence the difference, but some cases are more obvious than others. And if you ask me, one of those stories that is just going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger with time is Founders Metals. Uh, they released just absolutely incredible drill results on, it seems that the trains run on time regular basis uh, for their Antino Gold Project in Serena. So joining me today, as I said, is CEO Colin Padgett. This is going to be our, my introductory long-form deep dive, so it's going to be a bit lengthier. So of course, always as always, make sure to use the timestamps that I, that I provide with notes so you can jump around if you don't have an uninterrupted hour to sit down and listen to the whole thing. Before I turn it over to Colin, though, please remember all center disclaimers apply. I'll be asking Colin forward-looking questions. He'll be providing forward-looking statements. You know, blue side, blue sky scenarios rather will be involved. So you know, don't don't hold this against us in that regard. Uh, otherwise, Colin, welcome. Thanks for being on the show today. And how are you? Doing fine. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this one. Like I said, there's a it's a, this is an exciting one. So. Classic, classic uh, statement I always ask people to start with is just, you know, your, your typical elevator pitch, right? Just frame the conversation for us so that, you know, as we kind of get into the weeds a bit and then kind of get some elbow room going, we can, people can understand what they're dealing with. Sure. I guess like the high level overview is Founders Metals is a well, Canadian junior exploration company. Um, our flagship asset is the, the Antino Gold Project or in Southeastern Suriname, which uh, sits right in the middle of the the heart of the Guyana Shield. Um, and, and that's a really important jurisdiction. You know, our project aside even, it's uh, there's a lot of potential for that area. It's a very underexplored, unexplored area in many cases. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of really big projects come out of there over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Bringing our project into it, I, I think our project will be one of those really big things. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of success last year with some excellent drill results. Uh, started out this year pretty strong as well. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, two to three week uh, timelines on drill results. And, you know, I've been pretty proud of that part because we're able to you know, bring people along for the ride as we, you know, step by step grow this thing. Um, and there's uh, there's still a lot of exploration out and away from the main things we've been working. So I think 24 is going to give us an opportunity to, you know, dig into some of those as well. And um, yeah, just really kind of build this thing even more. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. Yeah, this, like I say, I really do believe this is one of those stories where if you're just tuning into it, you'll see that it's re-rated very healthily since the, since last summer. But I mean, I, I'm I'm buying right now, so I, I think that the, the the best is yet to come, certainly for founders. So, Colin, I, I just chatted with another younger CEO, yeah, just a, a young gun like me. So, I might just ask you, you know, do you want do you just want to go over your your work experience, maybe discovers that you've been involved with in the past because you are a geologist, and maybe you know, kind of rounding with the conversation. Just discuss how, how you came to be CEO of Founders, which is obviously such a hot, hot company right now. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, education background, I, I actually started in the business side. I did a business degree from Memorial University in Newfoundland, um, then worked in commercial retail banking for a little bit and um, decided that, you know, that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And I always liked the geology side of things. So I went back to school 
did undergrad in geology um, in, at the University of New Brunswick, and then graduate school at uh, University of Calgary. Um, all the while, I worked quite a lot well, initially with geologic survey uh, in the Yukon, bedrock mapping, field work, that sort of thing, um, and then moved from the you know, public you know, mapping you know, field work standpoint more into um, you know, working for companies, working on the industry side of things. Um, did some, you know, most recently, uh, Thesis Gold's uh, ranch project um, and the, the lawyer's project as well. I was pretty heavily involved with that uh, from fairly early on. And um, it was from that project that I uh, moved into you know, my role now with founders. As far as how I came on board as, as CEO, I really, you know, obviously came with the project, I suppose. Uh, I, you know, was initially introduced to the uh, the guys at Boria um, who were looking to to sell their, their option on Antino. And, you know, I kind of went through that whole process of, you know, negotiating that transaction and, um, you know, doing the due diligence work, putting it all together. And, um, you know, in doing so, I kind of came with the project and came on as CEO at that time um, when things got rolling. So it's been, for me, that's been a great thing is it, it provides a continuity that you don't always get. I think a lot of CEOs, you come into a project that exists, um, but being able to see it right from day one, like from the, the first time anyone in our group had really talked about or even heard of uh, the Antino project. It's nice to have come all the way. Yeah, it's something about institutional memory, right? And then being there, like you say, from day one just provides that ease of context understanding. So why don't we yeah. talk about, yeah, you, you talked about... The, your acquisition from Oria. I mean, this is, I find it so curious because the initial, so you acquired an option to own up to, to uh, earn up to 75% of Antino. You got it for $500,000 and a million shares. Honestly, you know, obviously that's pretty, that's a chump change for what this looks like it's turning into. Can you just tell the origin story? I mean, was this a distressed asset or how, how did it come to be that, that uh, founders came to, to possess that 75% path? Yeah. I mean, so I guess, like the, the story for for us coming or getting connected with it was just a colleague in our broader group uh, introduced me to um, all the guys at Oria and their they, their flagship asset um, is, is not or was not Antino um, it's the Montagne d'Or project in French Guyana um, which is you know a nearly five million ounce gold deposit so pretty significant main asset um, they however there's been there were some issues I think with you know, Russian sanctions and um, legal battles uh, with the French government. Uh, so just some complications there, I think, that uh, led to them wanting to or needing to um, kind of let go of some of their other assets. Uh, they had been working this, and the CEO at the time, Rock LeFrancois, um, he really, really likes this project. And um, one of the, basically how it went is they'd put quite a lot of time and work into developing this as their next exploration target. Um, you know, they flew brand new LIDAR survey. They resampled a lot of the historic core. I did, uh, they had a structural geologist come in and do a mapping project in all of the new pits. Uh, did a lot of relogging of some of the historic stuff. Uh, they put a lot of time in and spent, uh, spent quite a few dollars as well. And so for us, it was, uh, had scale. It had that kind of turnkey sort of feel to it. So it was really appealing. Um, but the property itself is um, is actually owned by Surinamese family or group. Um, they're the concession owners, and 
they're who the original option agreement um, was with between was Aurea and them. Um, and then we came in and acquired the option from Aurea as an assignment. Uh, so we paid Aurea. Uh, they're kind of now out or separate from the story. And it's now just us dealing with uh, with the folks in Serena. Sure. No, thank you. And so I've, I've tasked Colin here to, to, I've created a little PowerPoint or slideshow for, for this conversation. And so actually, Colin, this is one I rearranged on you. So on the fly here, do you mind? It'll be down near the bottom, but to, there is a, I just want to talk about your, your 75%, the, the, the sure. path to ownership here, if you scroll down there. Because I just want to ask, I mean, so yeah, this is a kind of a classic question that people ask, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're on, you're on route to 51%. looks like there's you know, that path to 75%. Uh, and so, I mean, you can see that it's still, in terms of cash and shares, it's not too bad, right? And obviously the work commitments will, I mean, that's just a price of success, right? And there's a new requirement to, to get some technical reports published as well. Um, but do you mind just to discuss... I think the question that people, you know, you've been asked this before, and I want to you know, kind of hear it from the horse's mouth, but is there a path mm -hmm. to 100% ownership? I mean, was there, are there conversations ongoing? What does that look like right now? I'd say there's, there's conversations ongoing. Um, the reality is, is that 25%, you know, that's remaining, you know, under the structure here is held by, you know, that, that group in Suriname. And, you know, they've actually been excellent partners in country um, and have helped immensely with, you know, the logistics side of things and, and just, our ability to do everything that we've done as quickly as we've done, I think uh, can, we can attribute some of that success uh, to their help on the ground. So I, I just put that out there because I, I think it's important having, you know, these kind of, uh, you know, very solid partners uh, makes a big difference. But um, the way it's structured right now is um, after stage two of the option, um, it actually goes to a proportional spend joint venture agreement. Um, and so under that, um, if they aren't contributing, um, they can be diluted down to 10%. So we, you know, depending on whether they're, you know, are able to, or, or want to contribute, you know, proportionally at that point in time, um, that's going to dictate whether or not we take it to, to 90, I guess, um, on our end. So, okay. uh, no, that's, that's good to know, actually. I mean, I think that, that like you say, not just a passive partner who you know, operates as a bit of a millstone, but uh, provides value on their own right. I mean, theoretically, you know, in a, in a world where you know, we're taking this to a construction decision, the door is open to to buying them out, or is this something that you think they would probably want to carry for the carry to production? No, um, there's that op that option is there, um, and you know, we're we've had discussions with them. They're definitely you know open to that. They're um, there's also a, a, a tag along clause associated with this. So, you know, if we were to get into a scenario where we're being bought out, um, they effectively can't stand in the way of that transaction would come along with us, um, come along for the ride, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, so we don't have any concerns that way. Um, and they're, uh, they're pretty, pretty switched on and pretty on board with, with everything that we've been doing and, and what our plans are too. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's it's good that way. I think yeah, quite good. Yeah, good to have. Yeah, like you say, in, in country partners that kind of know know who to talk to and where to go. Right? No, that's that's yeah, good. Thank you. And so let me just kind of balance around here, just to try to get some some basic content out for people. Right? Part of the reason why I like this, I mean, it's super cheap to explore. Right? One hundred and sixty bucks per meter. You own your own drill rings, which is kind of niche. Right? That's a, not necessarily a common thing that you see. Maybe a question I have. You know, can you drill twelve months a year? Or does the rainy season interrupt things for a period of time down there? No, we can drill 12 months a year. 
um, the, the rainy season, what it does is it means we change our strategy a little bit. Uh, so, you know, bigger, longer moves, we tend to try to have those happen when things are a bit drier. Um, we also you know, do our best, particularly at Froyo, where now there, there is opportunity to do some more, you know, infill type drilling from some of the pads, or, or at least make sure we're getting the density that, uh, that we'd need for a you know, future upcoming resource. Um, so we'll try to drill more from a single pad. Um, just be efficient that way uh, in terms of limiting moves, because overall it, it's rainy season. So if there's mud and machinery, um, the less big moving you do, the better. Um, that said, I mean, we started drilling last year in the peak of the rainy season. Uh, it was the end of June that we got rolling and uh, we didn't have any difficulty you know, achieving more than we, we even thought in terms of drill production. So um, year round drilling. Yeah, awesome. No, great. Another advantage, eh? So maybe I'd like to you up to, to head back up to the top here, if you don't mind, Colin. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say when we were kind of brainstorming in advance here, we, we kind of thought maybe having a conversation on its own about Suriname as a, as a jurisdiction, because I'm going to guess that for a lot of people, it's not high on our radar in terms of known known commodities. But uh, I just have some questions around here just for this conversation as well. Maybe we can say maybe we'll go back and, and you know, have a deep dive on that later. But I mean, so again, just to set this up, I mean, Physical infrastructure, it is remote, but it, it is remarkably accessible, right? This is one of the things I looked at right away when I knew where your location was. I mean, there's no no highways. You know, they're all kind of dedicated to the coastline because you're pretty deep in the Amazon there. But uh, within your property, a very established road system. You've got a, a river that runs right by the property so you can barge in. Airports with commercial flights accessible, you know, an hour flight away from, from, from cities, right? So it, it's not, you know, not something to worry too much about from that perspective. I guess maybe in, yeah. in terms of questions I have, you can obviously, if you want to touch on that, that physical infrastructure advantages, please feel free. But I was going to ask you more about, I guess, human infrastructure, right? I mean, what what, what is Suriname's background as a mining uh, jurisdiction? I mean, do you have ready access to skilled or unskilled labor? Do you have to import those things? How, what's what's that sort of, sort of deal like? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll touch on the infrastructure piece just just. You know, quickly, um, just so people have a sense of how things work for us. You know, the barge piece is a big, a big part of our access, and, and it's a big part of any future development story. I think as well. Um, on the property, there's you know there is heavy equipment, um, things up to you know forty ton, ton trucks and uh, three twenty excavators, D six, D eight dozers, that kind of thing. You know, and that's all able to be brought up on on a barge to the property. So, future development, that sort of equipment is all movable. Um, but it's coming you know, from here in Albina and then coming all the way up the river there. It's about, about a day and a half uh, on the barge. That's how our drills came in. Um, also, the, the road network here, it does. there's some kind of forest roads and things that do extend a bit further south, south of the Rocopondo, the main uh, the reservoir for the hydroelectric here. Um, so, you know, potentially there's you know, an opportunity for, for some road building down the road if, you know, if there's a, a scale piece that, that warrants that and... Uh, you know, work something out or something's worked out with the government of Suriname. Um, in terms of, you know, the country and, and, you know, its history and access to, you know, skilled labor, I really gold mining, both at the small scale and the, you know, the larger industrial scale you know, with the two mines in the country, uh, Newmont's uh, Marion mine, and then now Zijin has the Rosebell mine. Um, so there's a, there's a long history of gold mining. Um, the alluvial, Small scale artisanal mining that's been going on, you know, since into the 1800s, um, over quite a, a large area, particularly along that kind of main river here 
at least on the eastern side. But just having that industrial, you know, mining there for so long as well, it means that there's, you know, there's, you know, an education system that that goes along with that and kind of, you know, feeding the demand that those big operations have. And uh, yeah, we we certainly see the benefit of that in the people that we're able to hire. Um, for example, like our our drilling crews are pretty much exclusively locals. Uh, we have a Canadian drill foreman down there doing training effectively uh, and managing overall, but um, our crews are exclusively Surinamese and these are guys who have drilling experience um, and have come on board. So we're not, not starting from scratch. It's, uh, it's very good that way. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And then I guess the same thing in terms of the, the, the mining jurisdiction act or jurisdiction, pardon me, aspect in terms of assays, this is another nice thing is a pretty quick turnaround, but can you just explain where, where do you ship them off to? And then the, the, your typical turnaround time. Yeah, so in, in Paramaribo, so our uh, samples go out um, from camp. Uh, so main airstrip at camp, about an hour flight to Paramaribo. Um, and then there's actually a, a Bureau Veritas certified lab called FeeLab um, that operates there. Um, but a thousand sample per day, you know, capacity. Um, right now, they're, they're under that. And, and we're kind of priority, I guess, clients at this point. Um, and, you know, we have a negotiated two week turnaround time, um, with them. And, you know, in some cases, I mean, we've seen samples come back, you know, as quickly as three days, that's not the norm, but that's pretty, pretty wild, um, you know, in its own right, but, you know, on the sample note, the thing that's really great, it's, it's great from, uh, keeping everyone informed standpoint and getting news out regularly and all of that, but on the ground, from a technical standpoint, it's been really, really helpful. Um, particularly with, you know, we are talking with the rainy season being efficient with your drilling and, and moves and that sort of thing. I mean, if we're drilling three or four holes on a pad, we have had scenarios where we've gotten the assays back for hole one while we're on hole three. Um, and that's, you, you can't beat that. Um, you're, you know, reducing your remobilization costs. If it's something that you find and want to redrill or drill more of, um, yeah, makes a big difference. Same with, you know, ground exploration and sampling. Um, soil geochemistry, anything like that. You're getting that information in as close to real time as you can without having your own facilities, your own lab facilities right on site. And it means that you can, you can modify grids. You can yeah, change things on the fly to, to accommodate that information. Yeah. And that's exactly where, you know, obviously as a retail investor, it's nice to get timely results and not have to wait six months and it's last season's campaign and all kind of thing. But yeah. actually as a, as an act, as an explorer, having that almost real-time information to inform where you go next and how to how to conduct your exploration, strikes these yeah a huge advantage. Right? Um, yeah. What about just transitioning again, kind of shifting gears a bit? You know, so I can understand. You know, obviously, it's clear there's there's always a degree of resistance to to mining, especially in what you might consider to be ecologically sensitive areas, right? So just in terms of community support, right? I kind of want, you know, I'll give you an opportunity to discuss you know, both the, the, the both sides of the coin, so to speak, right? In terms of support, but also potential reluctance. I mean, to, but to start out with me, is, are there, has there been any protests or, or reluctance to, to your project? And I guess maybe also, you know, so kind of the, the, the follow-up to that is, can you explain maybe some community outreach efforts that, that you have ongoing? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, to the first question, no, there's not been any opposition or, or any protests or anything like that. Um, people have been you know, very supportive of it, of having us out there, um, particularly because it is, you know, quite a ways into the interior and 
you know, having that kind of rec- the recognition that comes from, especially a successful project like, like ours, um, it makes a big difference to the area. I mean, people are, you know, proud to live out there and, you know, seeing that attention come to the interior, it, uh, uh, it's, a, it's very important to the people out there. So um, in terms of, you know, outreach and, and what we're doing, Right now, or just just recently, um, we met with one of the the local Luku groups. Um, so we've you know just kind of initiating those relationships between founders um, and those groups. But we're also coming into a very long-standing positive relationship that again the the concession owners have um, with the the various you know, peoples who live along the river, um, that sort of thing, and and that helps. I mean, a lot of our employment. You know, we source as much as we can, you know, out of the local communities. Um, we certainly you know, apply a, a sort of Suriname first employment policy where we can. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think as we continue forward, you know, those sorts of employment policies, just bringing new infrastructure to the area, all of that uh, definitely helps uh, kind of the broader, the broader population. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It becomes almost the, the risk reward of mining as a local stakeholder. And, and if you're able to have to get that buy-in and understanding that this is an opportunity for, you know, economic revolution, right? Or reju- rejuvenation for these communities, that, that's easy buy-in, right? Uh, and what about taxation and royalties? I mean, you know, always this is looking forward to a positive construction decision in first port, et cetera. But can you just kind of very briefly gold or Suriname's, uh, yeah, taxation royalty schemes? Yeah, so, I mean, at present for um, for the industrial scale mining, um, basically there's the two projects. They both wind or have been their royalty schemes um, or any sort of government stake or ownership. Those are, have been negotiated as individual items. Um, there's, so moving to that stage of things, um, you're in talks with the government, understanding how and what sort of you know infrastructure and uh, capital improvement uh, piece they are able to provide, and it's a bit of a back and forth that way. Um, and so the the numbers wind up are being different for different projects because uh, there's a different level of involvement that the the government can take. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's the main piece on the small scale mining. Um, a lot of the gold is is brought to well to. Uh, Paramaribo, and then sold to to you know registered gold sellers, and then there's a, a royalty that that's taken at that point. Um, that's uh, you know including the fees. I think is on the order of six or seven percent um, for the smelting fees, and the royalty is, is you know, something less than that. So pretty yeah, pretty competitive. And so uh, uh, one last question here. I read that you do have an exploitation permit in place already. Can you just maybe provide some color and context there? What is it? Does it, does it cover your entire concession and maybe explain what that allows you to do? Sure. Yeah. So um, our concession here, so this is the, the big outline um, on this map, um, is actually two contiguous concessions, concessions that are 10,000 hectares each. Um, they are both exploitation concessions. And um, what, exploitation means um, really it's that um, there's you know active mining going on the on the property and that's the the alluvial uh, small-scale mining that uh, I think we've talked about before but um, that that's going on it's providing economic benefit to the region to the government um, and then there's you know royalties that sort of thing that are being paid and reports are being made on a regular basis to the government um, what it provides founders 
you know, as we earn into this uh, property, it provides us the opportunity to, you know, potentially do some small scale mining or uh, tailings processing of our own that would fall, you know, under those permits or those existing permits. And that's a big deal. But, but additionally, for our exploration work, uh, exploitation covers you know, all of what we need to do, the exploration type work we want to do. Uh, so we're you know, not in need of separate or additional permits for more drilling or, or that sort of thing, uh, which you know, is, is good. It means we're not faced with you know, being held up, waiting for those sorts of things, as can be the case in some other jurisdictions. We need to just kind of continue forward. Um, yeah, the, the stage before exploitation is exploration uh, permits. Um, those can be much larger areas, and typically they're uh, usually good for about three years where you're given a, a window of time to prove that there's something economic there uh, that could be mined or could convert them or have them converted to exploration, or sorry, exploitation. Yeah. So maybe the, the, the kind of the, the crux of my follow-up, I mean, do, do you have permits in place to get to full-scale production or, or, does this, or is there kind of an upper limit in terms of tons per day that this exploitation permit provides? There's no specific tons per day um, criteria. It's more if you want to, um, if you're going into you know, large-scale industrial production, um, the, the next level of permitting for that type of work um, is going to require um, that interaction with with the government proper, uh, where you're negotiating, you know, how what that relationship looks like, um, and so that's really the next step. So, commercial scale production. I mean, the definition of that is is tricky. I mean, is that you know a Newmont size operation, or is it you know a four or five hundred ton per day alluvial processing plant? Um, and you know, the first one means you need to have those conversations with the government. And the second one is something that, you know, you're already permitted for. So, yeah. No, excellent. Uh, so, I mean, you, you mentioned the tailings and I, I want to talk about that because that's a pretty interesting kind of uh, side piece to this conversation, but I'll put a pin in that for now because I do want to discuss sure. just discussing kind of community re relations, et cetera, the artisanal miners, as you said, I mean, 1881, I think the discovery was by a couple of French guys in the 1880s. So this is hardly a new story. Right. And, and, and so, there is a very active series of projects. I mean, I think that there there's 16 small pits, I think, on, on your upper Antino uh, property or project, pardon me. Um, I guess maybe the first question is, how many different alluvial or artisanal kind of mining projects are actually currently active on, on property right now? Yeah, on the property, um, there's uh, active operations in, in three, three areas, basically. So at upper Antino, uh, we've got, there's some people that have been working quite a long time uh, at Donut. Um, actually, it kind of feeds into the tailings conversation because it's, you know, the, what's producing those tails. Um, and then some work around the ginger um, eclair area. Um, so that's a smaller operation. And then the, probably the biggest operation right now on the property is, uh, is in Epoise, um, kind of right in the center of things. Um, so, and those are all miners that are, they're contract miners to the concession owners um, right now. Okay. All right. So that makes sense to me because, yeah, I guess you can see where probably I'm going with this. But, I mean, what is what is your relationship with them? I mean, obviously, I guess it's a contractor that does change things here. It's not kind of a rogue sort of gray gray yeah. area legally. But, yeah, what's your relationship with them right now? Our relationship is very good. Um, so since, you know, since we arrived, you know, we've made it a really – well, we've made it a point to – be as be in as much communication as we can with the people on the ground so that 
they understand what our goals are long term, um, and so that we can work with them. Um, and we do. We, you know, they're the ones out there that have heavy equipment at the moment. Um, they're the ones that you know have the very skilled operators of that equipment. Um, also for some construct construction type work, those sorts of things. Uh, you know, we have on numerous occasions hired uh, kind of all the different parties for various things um, to help us with on the exploration side. So um, the relationship is very positive, um, and the fact that they are contract miners uh, to the concession owners uh, that's an important distinction because uh, it having them there and, and one group's been there, a couple of groups actually for over um, well twenty years almost. 15 20 years and it lends a stability to the property that you don't necessarily see um in some of the the other uh, concessions out there in the guyana shield uh, in terms of kind of the, the illegal mining that i think you're alluding to well hello yeah. yeah that's the where i was going with this and you kind of solved that question is it this that there's always that risk of i mean these people naturally are going to feel a degree of possession over referencing more so the, the illegal mining right that feeling of possession of these areas because it is their backyard or it is their home and just that question around how do you how continue to maintain a positive relation so that they will vacate and not uh, cause a fuss to it i mean if they if they're under contract with the with the current concession owners and that kind of reduces that risk significantly um so it does you know go ahead for, there you go yeah i was just going to say i think if there's a i think there's an opportunity there as well where you know these are people that are on the ground they they own heavy equipment um, they, they know the ground quite well. Um, and I think there's an opportunity for, you know, company like founders, you know, particularly if we're thinking of things like, you know, mining or processing tailings, or if we wanted to do some alluvial mining of our own, um, there's certainly opportunity to you know, engage and employ those people to, to work for us as well. Um, and you know, you're, you're then saving a, a lot of capital expenditure in terms of bringing equipment in from, from Paramaribo, um, and it would lend a certain level of stability as well. Um, mining, artisanal mining, I think is uh, pretty up and down as far as you know, success and all of that goes. Uh, if you lose the line, um, it, uh, it can, can be slow for a while um, while they're you know, trying to find the, the next place where there's, there's gold to, to get out of the ground. So some work or some long-term employment from things that we might put together in the future, I think is a, an appealing or an attractive option. Yeah, the transition will smooth over any potential concerns anyway. You know, that's again, I, I, that's good information I wasn't aware of. Thank you. And I mean, this is, serves as a decent transition here. I mean, do we want to talk about, or I'd like to talk about rather, just yeah, historic exploration and production. I can say, we'll set aside production for just a moment here. And again, I'll just kind of set the table for people. 32,000 meters have been drilled historically. I think it's 60-40 diamond versus RC. Um, mm -hmm. Your, I guess maybe I'll, I'll, the question I have as an immediate follow-up to that comment is because like you, you mentioned yourself, it's sort of that turnkey aspect to this. It's very well understood. Lots of above and below ground exploration. Maybe just to, to kind of to get to the point here is how far away, what, you know, 2023 has been remarkable for founders, right? And so many just remarkably positive results. But I mean, how much of your 10,000, I believe, I believe 10,000 meters is the one where you got into the ground in 2023. And you can correct me as a, as you need to there, but how much of that kind of is confirming historical work, you know, kind of twinning holes of that, if, if that happened, I guess, and as a side question, but versus how much of that actually did expand through, you know, new discoveries, new areas. Sure. Um, well, I mean, all of the drilling that we did was at Upper Antino, um, 
I guess in 2023, um, over 90% of it was at Froyo. Um, I mean, once we started hitting what we were hitting, it was be hard to move away from that um, in terms of exploration targets. But uh, we did get some some drill holes into or a couple of them into Donut as well, um, which is one of the more intrusion hosted type targets. A uh, bit of a separate separate thing from Froyo um, towards the end of the year, um, and we're now kind of keeping that split right now um, with one drill staying at at Froyo and, and going from there. Um, in terms of the you know the historical data piece and turnkey, I mean the the big part of the turnkey comment is that you know Orea before us coming into it, they had um, you know compiled a lot of the historic database work. Um, they had reprocessed some of the the 1997 regional geophysics uh, things like that had already been done, um, and those are you know, those are things that take time, and you know cut that timeline down for us. You know, being able to get things rolling and and put together some ideas for you know, targeting new stuff. Uh, that said, I mean, well, first comment is that in terms of twinning, we never actually drew, twinned any holes directly. Um, certainly started out as confirmation drilling. Um, the historic hole at Upper Antino and Froyo was 62 meters at 10 grams. I mean, it's hard not to want to <laughs> see what's going on there. Um, and while we did have some, uh, I do have quite a bit of historic core. Um, you know, some of the mineralized intervals um, either were were missing or they had poor, low recovery. Um, and so particularly around that area, we had some questions that we, we wanted to answer. Um, so we started right there, um, drilled some stuff that, you know, just right into the, the meat of that, you know, 62 of 10, and it had some, some great hits. Um, but we were also, you know, drilling deeper you know, pretty much right out of the gate, you know, by hole five and six, we were drilling deeper than had been drilled before um, in those areas. So extending things to depth in the areas where mineralization was kind of known. Um, and then we moved initially uh, to the south. And I wonder if we do we have a long section in here. I think I saw one. Maybe that's a easier. Yeah. Um, so you can see it, the, the, this faded thing here is uh that's that 62 meters of 10 and so you know we started up early on drilling just right here beside it effectively um and then from that we moved to the south and you know just kept drilling deeper um i guess and and hit some some really fantastic and really broad intervals of mineralization down here and this is you know we're getting down to you know, 140 150 meters of depth. And there were a few hits. I mean, that was the thing with the historic data and, and what is always or still kind of puzzles us about it, especially with the amount of drilling we have of our own now at this point, um, is that, you know, there was, I mean, I think even in the, in his introduction to talk at uh, Metals Investor Forum, Eric Coffin mentioned that when he first reviewed this, it kind of looked a little spotty, didn't know if it would hold together. And, um, and, and he wasn't wrong. Um, but with our drilling, you know, following up on it and doing this kind of incremental step outs. Um, yeah, it has held together. And, and I don't know if it's a case of just the positioning um, of the drill collars, you know, so maybe the exact XY location we have isn't, isn't right for the historic stuff, uh, but we can't go back and find out what the right stuff would be now. Um, or there, there was definitely, you know, reports of poor, low recovery in some of the holes, some, some lost holes, that sort of thing. Um, so there could be a question of drilling, but um, yeah, it's 
confirmation, but then really growth, I think all along, um, you know, except for the first kind of couple and even where we drilled you know, some, some stuff where there were some hits, we wound up hitting bigger, broader, um, higher grade stuff. What was exciting for us because it was completely in a new territory was we moved into the Froyo ginger gap or connector here. And the reason that that hadn't really been you know, touched historically was there was a, uh, was a bit of a wet spot or low area. Um, but you know, we had some material from some of the artisanal mining that we could, you know, build a pad out of it. Um, and we did so, and, and those are some of the highest grade hits on the, uh, to date or on the property, 400 and almost 435 grams per ton in, in one sample. So, um, that's been phenomenal. And then after that, it was, it was actually within that area, basically before we moved, you know, we're looking to move up the hill. That was when we did our first big step back. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the right one. I think actually our first big step backs were, were back here basically to come underneath and to hit this deeper down. And that's when we started hitting this stuff in the parallel zone, um, or up higher in the drill string that we would have expected it. And so, um, yeah, it's just kind of built out like that. And I, you know, when we think about buying our own drills and, and all of that, one of the things that's really helped this has been the fact we had cheap drill beaters. Um, with, if we kind of initially gone with, you know, the, the third party drilling company, um, we would have, with the budget that we had coming into this, we've been pretty restricted in terms of overall meters for a program. And we probably would have had to make different decisions uh, in terms of spacing and, you know, growing things and, and testing other targets than we had to because we had such cheap meters and, and could do so much with so little. Um, so it's, I don't know, been a number of things all kind of come together to guess where it is. Yeah, find success, right? And you're right, that uh, having the meterage that you need to to find that discovery is so important, right? I mean, those little two or 3,000 meters drill campaigns, there's just not much room for error, right? And so, you know, question I have, and this kind of, like you say, kind of dovetails nicely here. I mean, there's, if, I, if my counting is correct, there's been five different operators that have had their names stamped onto this project since 2006. And so, you know, a decent number of people have had a, had a go at this. And like, and as we've ex explained, I mean, now almost 150 years of history on this land. So the question that I want to pose to you next is kind of a classic one these days, right? But I mean, and all, this might take a little bit of a tangent here, so give me a second. But, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what are you doing differently? I mean, obviously you're fighting, frankly, I guess we would call studying remarkable success, right? I mean, what are your approach then, obviously, what are you doing differently to, to, to achieve that? You're not doing kind of the classic modern exploration example of going 600 meters down versus 200. This is all, you know, eminently open pitable, 150 meters deep, right? Lots of like, exceptional grades, very close to surface. And so, you know, I don't want you to, is this, the, is this a matter of, as you just kind of alluded to, having the budget to properly explore this potentially for the first time? Or, and maybe, or... Maybe this is an opportunity for us to get into the weeds a little bit in terms of your geological model. But I mean, are you coming out as with a fresh perspective in terms of your, your exploration thesis? Yeah, uh, no, definitely get that question quite a bit. I mean, people want to know, yeah, what are you doing differently? I mean, like there's, there's a few things. That, the one I usually talk about first is the fact that, you know, even up until 2008, this, this was, you know, kind of more or less undisturbed ground. And so, you know, there wasn't that 3D view that we get even from day one stepping on this property. You know, we have now artisanal pits from that 
you know, gap between 2008 to and kind of 2014, 2015 timeframe for mining there. Um, we can walk up to and the main structure, you know, that we did all the drilling in 23 at Froyo, you can walk up to and touch that and you can measure it. Uh, you can sample it, we can grab samples over 50 grams per ton um, along that trend. And that's a big deal. Um, so in terms of just orientation and just, you know, being able to do a lot of structural measurements and you know, get data that wouldn't have been available, we have that. And that's a pretty simplistic, but it's, it's a really important piece of it. Um, and if you think about that exploration previously, then, you know, they're building drill pads, you know, in the jungle and they're really only getting the information that's coming out in the core. Um, and so it's a bit harder to visualize and put things together. Um, after that though, like a couple of big things that have helped us, um, first is the LIDAR data, um, LIDAR in you know, these sort of jungle terrains is just immeasurably beneficial to an exploration program. You know, it, you see through the canopy, you can, you know, see kind of the broader scale structures, understand kind of a bit more of what's going on. Um, you can even, you know, once you get a handle on what rocks do what or look like what, you know, in terms of topography, uh, you can get a sense of just the overall geology too from some of that, uh, or it just helps to piece that that bigger picture together. And uh, in geology, everything's about scale. So, you know, if you start to understand the big the bigger picture, you know, you can start applying that understanding to, to a smaller kind of deposit or outcrop or, you know, uh, drill, drilling scale. Um, and then after the, the LIDAR, I mean, we did ground magnetics and uh, IP. Um, without going into all the details, um, well, I guess we can, but uh, in terms of the IP data, you know, this is one I've, I've talked to uh, quite a bit about, but we were able to learn a lot about what was going on there from the IP in particular. And, and I'll admit, um, our VPX convinced me that this is what we should do. Um, cause I'm not historically a, a huge believer in IP or it, it works when it wants to. It's kind of how I, I've always felt about it. Um, but, but it's just, it became so difficult to, you couldn't argue with the results. Uh, you know, just being able to see, you know, things like this, this M fold here, um, that sort of structure to get that information, even out of IP is fantastic. Um, and then after that, it was just how well the chargeability, um, I know this is probably a bit small for viewers, but how well the chargeability lined up with those high grade historic auger samples. And those were all taken before there was a pit there. So we, you know, we get to kind of see what that signature looks like. Um, and then after that, learning more and more about the structure. And, and that's another thing I, I would say is different is um, we have, well, pretty much, pretty much since the start on the ground, um, we've had uh, Vincent Combs working for us um, as kind of a chief geologist on the, on the ground there. And he's uh, did his PhD on the Yao deposit, uh, which is a you know 1.7 million ounce gold deposit, a little over two gram average that's 10 kilometers away from us. Um, published two papers on that in 2022. So um, there's not too many people out there that would have a better background to kind of hit the ground running and, and be able to put the ideas together. But one of the big things that, that he pulled out of the information was, and in large part from some of this IP work, was that there is a, a Northeast component. And, you know, that Northeast orientation things, it's 
you know, that's the orientation that he was seeing it at the Yao deposit. And then here, you know, we see it as actually, you, know, you, you see where these bends are. Um, well, those bends, those are this, um, that orientation is associated with this kind of final or last stage of brittle deformation. And that stage of deformation is uh, linked to the highest grade mineralization, the highest grade gold that, we, that we've we encountered. And it was linked to the Yao deposit. Um, and we were able to really pick out the orientations um, of that sort of thing from this IP data and, and his work. So um, I don't know, maybe I got a little too into that, but um, yeah, I think, I think those are like, those are the big things that, you know, I've separated, you know, us from, from the last guys. Um, and, you know, it's, some of it has just affected this industry is iterative. Um, you know, it's, there's usually a number of people and it's having that historical data and being able to build on it, you know, that eventually leads to, you know, understanding it, particularly in, you know, these structurally hosted or structurally controlled type deposits, um, but being able to understand it at a level that then allows you to drill and target your drilling um, effectively to, to grow it. And no. I think that's where we're at. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I think it's Robert Friedland who has the kind of the quippy, uh, the, the overnight success 30 years in the making or sort of, sort of approach to things, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's, that's uh, no. exactly right. Yeah, right. And so I, I found it interesting. I mean, yeah, you, so you are benefiting from modern geophysical data, right? That those 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 that that those new data layers have been acquired. But I also think it's interesting, kind of a, uh, not something I necessarily thought about, but having you know having those alluvial miners actually kind of they operate as a proof of concept that they like as you said what what matches your data, you can actually see what's in the ground and that. In addition to that, you're actually in the crowd, literally being able to be able to pick up crab samples from these areas. No, thank you. That's yeah. interesting. And so, again, kind of decent transition here. Historical production: 530 ounces of gold have been mined historically. Um, mm -hmm. I guess first question: how, Any notion? Can you give us a, a decent grasp of how much of that is in the last 15, 20 years of more modern alluvial mining versus you know the historical build you know, from 1880 to 1930 sort of thing? Yeah, I think the the majority or over half of that would be in the last kind of 15, 20 year timeframe. Um, yeah, there's been, and I think the, the records as well are also, I think a lot tighter over that period of time. Um, the further back you go, you're relying on just single reports. Whereas, um, you know, we have the various reports, the quarterly and annual things that are going to the government on production off of the property. Um, and you know, the, the, the taxes that go along with that. So, um, you know, a lot of confidence in a lot of different, you know, data points pointing to you know, that amount of gold across the property. That said, I mean, there's there's certainly gold that's unreported um, that would have, you know, come off of it over its you know, what, 130, 140 year history, uh, no question. So the 500,000 ounces is really just a starting point and what, you know, we can really put our finger on, um, but I'm sure it's a, a much larger number. And that was, that was another one of those, uh, you know, scale, tight pieces that had us, well, got us really interested from the beginning because, you know, the alluvial mining is typically, typically dealing with recovery on the order of 20 to 30%. Um, and so the great thing about that half a million ounce number is when you think about those sorts of recoveries, you're actually looking at 2 million plus ounces of gold that have been moved. Uh, it hasn't all left. Um, a lot of it's still there in the tailings. And, you know, as you said, we'll talk about that later, but certainly our tailings results point to that. So, um, just seeing that, you know, you're already talking a million, multi-million ounce gold deposit, um, in terms of that historical production. And, 
yeah, it's speaks to a pretty, pretty massive gold system. And, and even this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but in terms of like alluvial footprint, um, yeah, in this one, you know, a lot of big discoveries, um, in these sorts of jungle terrains, um, come out of areas where there has been a, you know, long history of historical mining. And the big thing that people are looking for are, you know, these alluvial footprints. So all of the workings, you know, in and around Boise, in and around Lower Antino, Upper Antino, and then, you know, Yao, the deposit I mentioned is just over here, but you can see the alluvial workings around that. And then there's, you know, workings to the north of us as well in Benstorp. So, um, yeah, so. Yeah, they're they're your your pathfinders. They kind of a pathfinder, it's not a social pathfinder, but element, but a pathfinder human, I guess, right? No, it's uh, yeah. interesting. So, I mean, maybe let's talk about the tailings now, right? You kind of brought it back up, and so I mean, again, I'm going to guess this is a conversation you have sometimes, but to me, it seems so tantalizing. Gravity separation, 35 percent recovery. I think I'm not sure about that from your MDNA for, or from your technical report, but like you said, I mean, there's you know a million and a half ounces of gold in waste piles that are just kind of waiting for somebody with a, with a budget to, to process them. And so, you know, yeah. in one hand you have that and the other hand you have this exploitation permit that theoretically allows you to mine these tea legs. And then, so maybe this is a little untraditional, but I mean, to me, you know, as, as kind of just a, you know, I guess a full, full, full recognition of me, me being an armchair quarterback here or backseat driver, but is there a path to funding this project moving forward by trying to get this into production a little bit, or is that maybe an unnecessary distraction from, you know, the, the core prize of exploration or do you just want to kind of explain your, your thoughts and reasoning in this, on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we've, we've had the tailings thing and kind of on the back burner a little bit, um, last year, um, really, we just didn't want to distract from the exploration conversation, um, nor from our focus on the exploration. Um, but, you know, as you know, we did this work and, um, as we continue to do work on you know, the tailings at Upper Antino and, and soon start doing some some sampling down in the Boise area as well, um, where the vast majority of the tailings on the property um, are. It really does open that conversation of okay, well, there's there's enough of it here. The timelines to to actually putting something like this in production can be relatively short, um, you know, on the order of you know, within a year kind of thing, and. You know, it looks like there's stuff here to process and to generate revenue and, and potentially enough revenue that you're in a place where with the drilling costs that we have, that you could do a considerable amount of drilling, considerable amount of exploration work with, without needing to go back to the market and, and finance that way. You know, so, you know, it becomes more and more attractive to, to move towards this kind of non-dilutive exploration and growth. Um, and, it, you know, adds a certain level of scarcity to, to the founder's shares. Uh, as well, um, which, uh, you know, would be a good thing for, for investors. Um, you know, I think our debate right now, um, not debate, but we're, we're still putting some of the information together in terms of some preliminary metallurgical work and, and some additional sampling to get a better handle on, you know, overall grades, you know, consistency, all that sort of thing, um, is really, you know, what's, what are the two, what are the options? And the options really are that, you know, founders, decides that it wants to do some mining as well. Um, we acquire the equipment to do so and, and then put things into production, hire our own crews and, and that sort of thing. That's one option. Um, the other one would be that we partner with a, a third party operator. Um, and then we would have some sort of 
gross royalty or offtake agreement or, or something along those lines. Um, and yeah, the final numbers I think will really dictate you know whether there's enough value there to offset you know kind of the you know I would say at least partial distraction from the expiration um, and the risk uh, to do it ourselves, um, or do we remove that risk entirely? Uh, by having someone come in with their own capital and then we just take a cash flow piece from it. Um, so that, that's where we're at, at with it. But it's it's very much on the radar and something that we're working on. Interesting. Yeah, just being a, a silent partner to that, yeah, interesting. So it is, a, it is a 2024 decision, do you think? Is that something that Mark will learn about in this calendar year? Yeah, I would say so. Excellent. Yeah. So why don't we, we're kind of, we're transitioning to the end of this. Um, that's it. You know, and maybe this is, you know, you're where maybe more people more generally start here, but I, you know, I think that this is in terms of the flow of the conversation, maybe it makes sense for us to end on this, but you know, why, why don't we, you know, a two part conversation here, let's, let's review your 2023 drilling a little bit. This is your classic, this is going to be your classic sales pitch a little bit here for a couple of questions from me mixed in. And then, you know, sure. your 2024 preview, right? So you've got 30,000 meters as my understanding coming up. So you're obviously expanding rapidly. Um, maybe, you know, I'll, I'll maybe ask a couple of questions and like I said, you feel free to, to, to go sure. off on whatever conversation you want, but how many holes that quick recap of how many holes that you, you drilled in 2023? Uh, 54 holes, um, 2023. Uh, yeah. And then, as I said earlier, the bulk of which are at Froyo, um, with the, the remainders at, at Donut. Um, yeah, I expect well, well with the. That was just over 10,000 meters, 10,250 um, for that. Average depth was, for ours, probably around 175 over the course of the year. We had a couple deeper ones and um, just testing stratigraphy and geology things. But, uh, yeah, that's where we came in um, for 2023. For 2024, um, you know, we do have quite a bit. Well, we've, we've got, you know, a budget now or we've got, you know, some cash in the bank and, um, we do have a plan for kind of upwards towards that 25 to 30,000 meter number. Um, it depends a little bit on how much exploration we work we do. Um, that said, uh, we also still have a lot of those warrants um, in the money that are out there. And um, if they continue to trickle in or come in as they have done, um, I think that that's going to allow us to do even more potentially than, uh, than, than what we have slated right now. Uh, in terms of plan, um, this is actually an all right slide to, to point to things. I mean, one drill is it for sure. Right now we have two drills running. One drill for sure is staying at Froyo. Um, and it will do a combination of right now we're you know, continuing to test that, you know, that in the new parallel zone. Um, but I mean, the deepest part of those holes, you know, as they were originally designed to do is still testing further to depth, uh, the main Froyo shear as well. Um, so one drill staying there and really you know, we'll be doing some infill or some of this parallel zone drilling, um, but then we'll start stepping out to the north. We have holes planned in that direction. Um, and then we will head towards the south, I think once we've gotten those things filled in, because we've yet to test anything south of the runway um, or follow up in that direction. Uh, the other drill, we will be doing a bit more drilling a donut. Um, I'm gonna put that together, get assays back, and, uh, and then we'll be releasing information on that. Um, but then the other thing that the drills will be doing um, at Upper Antino is uh, testing some 
wildcat, I guess, if you want to call it that, uh, but just some, some exploration targets that, you know, came out of the geophysics work, came out of some, some sampling and mapping work on the ground um, that are just really interesting to us. And, and those are things that haven't seen any drilling historically, um, haven't been mined or anything like that, um, but, uh, you know, warrant for sure um, us you know, doing some work on them. And with the drills right there, that's, that's what we're going to do. After that, those wildcat holes are done. Um, we'll at that point be making a decision whether the drill at Donut or you know, kind of the exploration drill um, heads directly to, to Boise to start working on, on drilling down there. Um, there's quite a, quite a few targets down there to work on as well. Um, or, you know, depend, depending on success up here, it, it may stay up here. And uh, we're actively working on bringing a third drill online um, later on this year. And so that third drill would go to Boise if that was the case. So it's a bit of a balance and working within, you know, what we have in terms of, you know, capability or capacity on the drilling front. Um, but we're looking to increase that capacity. So, mm-hmm. so you seem to have a bit of a, not to overstate it, but I mean, a bit of an embarrassment of riches and targets and, and potential drilled prospects too. I mean, how do you, how do you leave Froyo alone when it keeps giving the results that it does, right? Uh, and yeah. maybe you know, I, I might, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here at the very end of this conversation, your call it, cause, uh, and you know, again, I'm going to emphasize here, right, forward looking statements and blue sky, but I, I, if people are wanting to do a little bit of napkin math, uh, specific gravity that they would be using 2.6, 2.7, or, or do you want to kind of just tell us what you, what's the, yeah, what's no, the number? For, for the rocks, I think that would be, that would be reasonable. Um, for the upper part of it, you know, saprolite specific gravity. So, you know, in the case of the drilling we've done at Froyo, we're anywhere from kind of 15 meters to 35, 40 meters of saprolite before we're into proper rock. And it's a pretty sharp transition from the saprolite or the oxide material into the, the fresh rock. Um, that would be 1.3 to 1.6, um, would be a, a reasonable specific gravity for, for that interval. Um, yeah. Okay. And then, so, you know, you could probably infer where I'm going to be heading with this. I might ask you to sneak back over to the, to the, uh, the, the yeah. picture of your body there. Um, you, you, what's, I mean, right now, based on your confidence, I'm not asking you to, to kind of say things that are, they're untenable or kind of unreasonable based on current evidence, but based on current evidence, what are the rough dimensions of your body as, as you understand? Well, so it depends on how you look at it, I guess. Like, so right now, you know, what, what we're talking about in this press release, uh, when we put this information out, looking at the parallel zone, you know, we're talking about the footprint and the footprint is the projection to surface um, of all of the hits within our, you know, drill string. And so originally we were looking at, you know, it's about an 80 degree dip, 80, 85 on the main Froyo's structure. Um, so 70, 80 meters, kind of that, that ballpark would have been that projection of surface, um, maybe a little bit less, but then now with these hits out and away from that, um, and initially, um, you, know, you see the ones that we had here, uh, we didn't have as much information on you know, the, the infill between the two structures, but we, you know, we're putting together that there's a, another structure out this way that stretched things out to kind of a 200 meter footprint. Um, that by itself would have been two kind of parallel sub parallel structures, but there would have been a gap in the middle. And so if you're doing your napkin math, you'd have to think about that gap. Um, what was, I glad you have it in here. What was really exciting about hole 45, um, our last press release is 
six intervals of grade um, that are down this pretty much the whole way down um, where we're tagging the main structure uh, at depth, but then filling in a, a huge volume there. Um, and so our continued or, you know, upcoming drilling here, we'll have some results in the not too distant future um, is really additionally kind of filling that in and understanding how much of that whole volume, you know, has economic grade through it um, because it's a, that's, that winds up being a very big deal. Um, you know, having two high grade structures, you know, with, you know, material, waste material in the middle is very, very different story from having two high grade structures, you know, with, you know, maybe it's somewhat lower grade, but, you know, or material in between them, um, very different scenarios. And, you know, my impression is that, you know, we're heading towards the latter, um, that we are, do have enough that's, that's holding together, um. To, to really fill in that gap. Um, there's still quite a bit of drilling to do, um, you know, won't deny that, but uh, it's pretty exciting because that's one of these things where, you know, it, early on people are like asking about the same question you asked, you know, re-drilling or drilling some of the stuff that was known historically, um, you know, good historic data or otherwise, but this stuff is all new and, and it takes it from this one, you know, um, steep dipping high grade shear or structure to, you know, what can be a proper, you know, an impressive volume. Um, looking at the cross section here, you know, we were originally just dealing with, with this. And so from a mining standpoint or scenario, you think, you know, a one steep structure, you know, certainly the widths and things are there for some, some great underground mining. It makes for a fairly high strip. If you are, you know, doing, trying to mine that in an open pit scenario. Um, but, starting to fill in this, this volume, you know, all through here, that winds up making for a much, much lower strip ratio, um, in, in mining that. So you're getting a lot more volume of, of ore overall. So it's, that's, it's a big deal. It, it adds a lot to the deposit, not just, a an extra parallel zone, um, not to underplay that, but it, it adds a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. It's one of those things where, you know, like you say, that the you know, where I started with this is, your story is, is just starting to get told. I mean, other than Froyo in this area, these are this is just the start. I think 2024, that's where I, mean, I guess that's why I started where I did. Is this is not just a one off, but I mean, you have a whole host of, of targets that look I mean, suspiciously similar to to what you've just accomplished at Upper Antino. It's exciting times. I won't ask you, I was going to ask you about average grade, but I think people, I mean, we've, we've kind of pointed to them directly, they can plug in the grams per ton that they want to, to kind of play with those numbers but i mean yeah things get very exciting in a hurry here as i hope that people are starting to understand but uh so maybe two last kind of grab bag questions we're at the one hour mark here so maybe i should just I'm try to be try to try to be efficient here but philosophically talking about a jv or sale or you know with the, the successful endpoint i mean you know i think i say this is really a kind of a philosophical discussion i'm not looking for any sort of specific data or specific comments but at what point do you call it quits? I mean, at what point do you say that you've 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 achieved what you think you, you you've kind of drilled out the value? You think that the, there's a fair number? It helps, I guess. Maybe how close are you to that? Well, that is a tricky question um, because I think that there's, I think there's so much potential for the property as a whole, um, and I think there's a you know any number of things out there that you know are Froyo-esque or. Um, other big things are, are out there on the property. 
Um, so it's really hard to say, you know, when do you move away from that or, or decide that this is the time, but certainly, I mean, our, our plan will be, you know, to, to always be moving forward in kind of, you know, regular steps, uh, towards, you know, uh, an industrial scale production scenario. Um, but mostly in a, you know, in a de- from a de-risking standpoint, um, for, you know, I mean, I think like every junior, um, hopefully a, an eventual, you know, buyout or partnership with, a, with a major, um, yeah, it's hard to, to put a time or anything like that on that. Um, but I think we're going to move consistently in that direction. Um, I haven't really said it, but you know, we're, we're certainly resource would be our, our next big milestone. Um, you know, along with some metallurgy work that we'll be starting here in the next month or so. Um, but resource would be the next big thing. Um, we're, looking right now at the pace of things and anticipating a first resource you know, by kind of mid 25 um, is the, the timeline we're putting on that right now. And so, you know, I think that will be centered largely on, on Froyo and, and what's around it. Um, but depending on, you know, what comes back from, from donut, um, from other things further afield, you know, there's potential for, you know, subsequent resources on those things as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we're just keep moving things forward. Um, always looking to de-risk the project, add ounces as much as we can, and uh, and then see, yeah, get as much value as we can out of it. Um, too early, uh, you're, you're just you're not kind of getting the value that that I think shareholders want and and should get out of a project like this. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, excellent. And, and so yeah. It- Maybe just a quick follow-up question. Any NDA signs that you've have you got people sniffing around already? Um, yeah, there, there's definitely some interest um, in the property. Um, there's you know, there's lots of players in the Guyana Shield right now, um, and I think that I think a lot of people, especially in the you know the mining world or the big miners out there, recognize that that's it's a jurisdiction where there's going to be new big discoveries. Um, so uh, there's there's definitely interest. Fair enough. And I'm bet not to give you whiplash here on the very last question, but we're going to leap out of, out of Suriname and into New Brunswick. I mean, your Elm Tree project, yeah. is that officially uh, officially redundant for you? Is this a kind of an option itself sort of situation, or are you going to actually try to make some progress on that too? Um, we, we don't have any plans right now to do any additional exploration work. Um, because of the work that we did in 21, um, our claims are, are good there for quite some time. Um, Right now, I think the, the plan would really be looking for, you know, option sale, JV type work um, for that property, because this really is 100% of the focus. Um, yeah, I, I think that's really the future. I, there's, so there's some opportunity to, to obtain some, some value from Elm Tree. It's a 300,000 ounce gold deposit, PEA level. And, um, and that's before adding in any of the work that you know, we did in 21. Um, so it's an interesting Interesting deposit, interesting area of the world. I think the the Bathurst mining camp has a has a pretty bright, uh, positive future in, on the mineral exploration front. Um, but right now, this this is our hundred percent. So, yeah how how could it, how could it not be right? No, so call. I think that's it, call. I mean, I guess uh, as I will as I generally do. I mean, any, any final thoughts to you, or kind of any final final word to you? Yeah, no, I think I mean we've kind of touched on all all of the big things here. Um, I 
think it's great to, to get to sit down and chat and kind of in a yeah, more casual format, go through all of these, these different conversations and I'm um, looking forward to the next ones. Yeah. Excellent. No, and I appreciate your, your answers, your, your forthcoming and, and informed answers. I appreciate that. It makes for, makes for a good conversation. So yeah, call Padgett founders medals, take a look. Uh, yeah. They're, they're one that, one of those stories that like I say, the more I read about it, the more I like it. So yeah, call Thank you for your time. And like you say, till next time, I look forward to it. Yeah. Thanks very much. 